Welcome to episode 56 of Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and it's really wonderful to have you as part of our community of listeners. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch from wherever in the world you're listening, you can contact the podcast team by email. Our address is ltsw at basw.co.uk. Today we'll be discussing an issue that we haven't touched on at all before, and that is myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly shortened to ME, and also referred to as chronic fatigue. We'll consider the impacts it has on the lives of those affected and what social workers need to know to support and advocate for service users with ME. With me today are Sonia Chowdhury, Chief Executive of Action for ME, and Tony Crouch, Social Work Advisor to the 25% ME Group and the Young ME Sufferers Trust. Sonia, Tony, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. It's great to have you on the podcast. Sonia, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you, Andy. Good, good. Welcome. And Sonia, where are you at the moment? I'm based in Bath. Okay, okay. And Tony, how are you doing? Are you well? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. Very good. And whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Dunmo in Essex. Okay, okay. Bath, sorry, just come back, uh, Sonia. Bath is a, a lovely spot. It's yeah, very kind of posh. Would that be right? <laughs> Not at all. There's nope. a lot of deprivation that often oh. you don't see when you think of Bath. <laughs> okay, okay. So when I was in Bath, I did not see that. Right. And that shows me just how much I know. But it is, yes, the lovely big crescent and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's very yes. beautiful. It is. It certainly is. Now, Sonia, Tony, today we're talking about. I'm going to try it again because I think I got it right the first time. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. Is my pronunciation correct? Yes. yes. Okay, I did practice. It's a big word or two big words. Um, and that is ME. Now, ME is, an Ill- ME is an illness that most people will have heard of, but not everyone, and I include myself in that, not everyone would be able to list off all the symptoms of ME or understand fully how it affects people. So, Sonia, can you start us off right at the ground level? What is ME and who does it affect? ME is a neurological illness that can affect anybody of any age, any background. It most commonly um, has symptoms that uh, can affect your cognitive system. So people talk of brain fog, cognitive dysfunction, hypersensitivities to light, sound and even touch. Some people experience pain, but the key defining symptom of ME is something called post-exertional malaise. That is a flare-up of symptoms and severe persistent fatigue that doesn't improve with rest. Okay, thanks. And do we know what causes ME? There are lots of clues that um, give us an indication of what might cause ME. ME affects all of the body systems. Many people get ill after a viral infection. It can affect your immune system. There are indications of genetic factors, um, environmental factors for for some. So some people talk about um, a reaction to pesticides or heavy metals. But as such, we do not have any um, validated research that tells us exactly what causes ME. And honestly, there's probably going to be more than one cause. Okay. And so just one of the things you mentioned there was um, ME, contracting ME after a viral infection. Was that right? Yeah. So about, I think about, it must have been 15 years ago, I had had, I had a very, what seemed like just a very kind of bad cold and I was absolutely wiped out um, afterwards. And I'd seen the doctor and I was told by the doctor that I had post-viral fatigue and which she explained was sort of like the most benign end of a spectrum which could have ended in ME Um, and I find that really frightening 
Um, and I was basically told just don't do anything for you know a number of weeks and rest up. Um, one of the things you hear when I was reading about Emmy was this sort of this idea that it's so important that people don't push through in inverted commas when they're feeling absolutely um, drained. Is that something that people have been encouraged to do in the past? There's, I mean, I know there's been an awful lot of misunderstanding of what Emmy is um, and how it affects people. Yes, so it sounds like you had a good doctor who advised you to rest, and that is absolutely what people should be doing. Unfortunately, that's not what we hear often, and people are advised to exercise or to push through, but rest is the key thing. And Sonia, I want to make sure when we're on the podcast, terminology is so important, language is so important. Um, I just want to make sure I get this right from the outset. Should we be referring to ME as a disease or as a condition or as a syndrome? You know, what's the what's the correct terminology? So some experts consider ME to be a disease and others think of it as a syndrome. A disease typically refers to a specific medical condition that has a known cause, symptoms and treatment options. ME is not yet fully understood and so therefore there's a combination of clinical evaluation and an exclusion of other potential underlying conditions, hence the use of the phrase condition. I describe ME as an illness. It's an illness with a very severe impact at whatever stage of your illness and therefore it um, is important to recognise the impact it has. Okay, but if I if I use the term condition, is that going to be in any way offensive, or is that okay to use as a as a term? It could be offensive for some. It could be okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it's, I think I think this is a bit of an aside, but I think one of the challenges, and you use the words chronic fatigue at the beginning, as we talked about when we met, the way in which the language has been used to minimalise the impact of the illness on people is is really challenging and it's actually created it's contributed to the prejudice and the stigma okay so yeah i'm, I'm just conscious of that term chronic fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome you would advise against using that term i hate both a lot of people hate okay. both but chronic fatigue is a common symptom in a lot of illnesses including ms cancer leukemia you know all of those um so it's it's really confusing and me is so much more than just chronic fatigue Okay, so you feel that minimises the illness, yeah. I'm just, and I'm conscious just, just to kind of have total clarity in this. I mean, the NHS, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, the World Health Organization, and the ME Association, they all still use chronic fatigue syndrome. Are you as Action for ME, are you sort of ploughing your own furrow in terms of trying to drop that terminology syndrome? Or is, you know, are, are others with you on that? Lots of people uh, uh, would prefer to see CFS dropped. Um, we use the term because that is currently what is diagnosed in in the NHS. But when we talk about ME, we talk about ME and we might say, you know, sometimes called chronic fatigue syndrome. Some people will argue they are different things, which may be based on severity or how people are affected. But as an organisation, we say ME and will include CFS. Tony, you, I think you, you're the same. I think I think all the um, ME charities say ME. I mean, the ME Association only refers to ME CFS because that's what Nice referred to it as, and and on Nice we were not able to consider anything else. We weren't given the option of, of choosing a name. We were told, right, it's ME CFS, which is a, at least a turnaround from what it was before, because it was CFS ME. Now, Tony, explain. You you spoke as Nice. You have a you have an official role in, uh, with Nice, don't you? Well, 
No, I was on the I was on the guideline development committee um, for C, for for MECFS. Get it right? Uh, oh yeah, I was on the guideline development committee for MECFS as the social worker. So uh, there's a guideline development committee with a, a large number of people on it. Great, and we're going to talk about those guidelines shortly because I think they're really, really important. Mm. I'm just, I am conscious, just when I was reading up doing my prep for this episode, I was on the WHO's website and they note that they conducted an extensive literature review of research relating to the condition and the only constant in the studies reviewed was the lead symptom of fatigue persistent over time. So my guess from that is that's why they, they're still going with the chronic fatigue syndrome because it is the, the sort of unifying. But as you said, um, Sonia, Chronic fatigue mm-hmm. is a symptom of cancer, of MS, of other illnesses and other conditions. Grant, sorry, just while we're talking about terminology, though, um, and I don't want to, forgive me, this is not, I'm not trying to be provocative about this, but I'm aware that um, your organisation, on you published some media guidelines, which are really, really helpful, advising journalists how to um, address certain terms to use and certain terms not to use. One of the terms that was it was advised against using in that was ME sufferers. And Tony, I'm aware that you are a social work advisor to the Young ME Sufferers Trust. So is that language which ought to be updated as well? Possibly. But I mean, the thing is that people actually do suffer severely with it. Um, so it, as, as, far as, uh, as far as the 25% group are concerned, we, we like to talk about people with ME and people with severe ME. That I wouldn't shy away from the fact that people suffer a very great deal, but, but obviously there's also, you know, there's the normal disability issues, which is life can be made better for you if <laughs> if you're less disabled by society. Yes, absolutely. And pursuing a social model of disability rather than a medical model of mm. disability. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just if anyone is unfamiliar with that, um, Tonya. Tony, keep me right. The, the notion, the social model of disability is that a person is disabled by the way society is constructed, by the way we plan services. People are excluded because of, you know, physical barriers and also structural barriers. Uh, and that is, yeah. Am I correct? And have I explained that? Okay, great. I've got nods. No one else can see, no one listeners can see the nods, but I'm getting nods. Right. Um, thank you. So, and Tony, just, uh, just again, just to explain a bit about what you do. So you're an advisor to the 25% ME group. Tell us about that. My understanding is that that is the 25% of the quarter of people with ME who are most severely um, affected by the illness. Is that right? Yes. So it's a, it's a group particularly for, for that um, group of people who range from um, nearly always sat housebound and some of them are completely bedbound, very severe. And, and some of them need uh, nutrition, need help with toileting, etc. So the, the thing is about ME, that there's this very big range of, of how people are affected. So some people are mildly or moderately affected, but you get through to the group, that the 25% group uh, are acting for. It's, it's just those of the most severe sufferers. It's... I think people don't actually understand quite how severe it can be in the main. Or tell us how, how severe can it be? You mentioned someone can be housebound, someone can be bedbound. What does that mean? You're basically living your life without able to, you haven't the energy to participate in any sort of normal activities? Absolutely. So some people, if they try to clean their teeth, that will exhaust them and they'll be unable to do anything else for the rest of the day. It can be that, it can be that bad. 
Um, we've got people who haven't been out of the house for 10 years. Uh, obviously, that is a real problem if you need to access services like dentist or the optician or things like this. Um, or if, or indeed, if, if you get some additional illness which needs medical treatment, uh, the biggest nightmare is going to hospital, um, which is absolutely the wrong sort of environment because it tends to, tends to be noisy and so forth. Most of the people with severe ME need to be in a fairly quiet place, often in a darkened room, uh, and, and you can imagine the kind of problems that then happen if you do go into hospital. Yes. The NICE guideline recommends strongly that people should be put in a side room if it happens, but we all know the pressures on hospitals for side rooms, so sometimes that's a real big problem issue that we're trying to negotiate on behalf of people. In addition to that complete fatigue uh, um, and lack of energy, people with very severe ME, do they also feel very unwell? Very often they're in a lot of pain. Um, they often have a lot of difficulty with um, gastric problems. They, they're unable to process, digest food and so forth. That can give them additional pain. And permanent headaches often and brain fog. Um, so, yeah, it's not a good place to be. Uh, and we've got people who've been ill for years and years and years. Can somebody start off with what would be considered moderate ME and because they are told to push through or exercise, can that cause their condition to deteriorate? Absolutely. Um, and some people who've been pushed too hard at the beginning or pushed at all uh, can be ill 30 years later as a result. It literally can be that damaging that if, if you push too hard, if you're pushed too hard, we've got people who've been admitted to hospital when they're initially ill, uh, given intensive physiotherapy for a, a week or two and, and told to carry on in that in that vein. And they've absolutely gone right downhill and never, ever recovered years later. So this is why it was so important that the NICE guideline was changed to make absolutely clear that this is not the way to deal with people who've, who've got ME. That only changed in 2021, isn't that correct? It is, yeah. yeah. Well, that, I mean, the, the charities have been campaigning for a long time to get it changed. Uh, but I'm pleased to say it, it is now changed. But we need to get the message out because not all doctors uh, and, and other health professionals or social workers have, have got the message. And it is a guideline, of course, that is for health and social care staff. Yes. I wish it was for education staff as well, but... Uh, the nice, okay. nice are only able to give advice to health and social care. Yes. And just to ask a question, which I'm pretty sure I know the answer to before we move on, there's no cure for ME? Uh, sadly, that's the case. Yes. So we've talked about, um, I think, Son, you mentioned earlier on about um, misconceptions, and that's something I really want to talk about now in some detail. But I was reading um, an article I was on Google searching for kind of media coverage um, of in relation to Emmy. I came across an article from 2002 from it was published in the Independent newspaper, and it referred to a government report which noted that Emmy is quote a serious chronic condition that must be taken out of the medical wilderness. Now that was 21 years ago. That's not very long, two decades. Do we know why Emmy has only recently been considered as a serious condition? It's interesting because I would say that's a long time ago and people have been ill with ME for decades and things haven't changed. So I 
think that what what has helped is the focus on long COVID. We've clearly had COVID-19 where people have become very ill with a known virus and have stayed ill. In fact, over two million people have stayed ill in the UK alone. And that has helped create a greater focus on ME, given many people get ME after a virus. But I do think that there has been a recognition aside from that within health and public awareness of the impact of ME. One in four people are so severely affected by ME that their house and bed band in the way that Tony described. I read a piece of research yesterday and a doctor was talking. He said, you only have to listen to a patient and hear their story to believe they're affected by a serious illness. You don't need the underpinning causes and the research underneath it. And I think if we had people that listened to those experiences, we wouldn't need to be talking about convincing people it was a serious condition. Yes, absolutely. And certainly two decades to live with an illness without it being properly understood is a long time. But I suppose what I was getting at is it's still two decades is comparatively short period of time when you compare it to medical understanding of other conditions, for example, cancer. I mean, that article was still referring, that article from 20 years ago was still using terms like yuppie flu, which people will probably have heard of, which is obviously incredibly pejorative. Um, and I, I, that was kind of, that goes back to the 80s, doesn't it, that sort of terminology? It does. But if you look back to the 1950s, when there was an, a viral outbreak in the Royal Free Hospital in London, people didn't get better. And it is thought that those individuals had ME. And if you read Florence Nightingale's diaries, you could determine she had ME. So we're not talking about an illness that's lasted for two decades. We're talking about an illness that has gone back many, many years. But the language and the way it's been determined has changed. Yes, absolutely. So uh, kind of going back past, you know, maybe prior to the 1980s, was was there any concept conception of what ME was? If somebody had symptoms of ME, you know, fatigue, um, he- constant headaches, unable to get out of bed. What was there any, how would that have been understood medically at that stage? Depends who you asked, but there are phrases like mass hysteria and neurasthenia, which indicate it was a, a psychological mental health issue, mainly, I suspect, because it was associated with women. But we do know polio was defined in a similar way. Multiple sclerosis was defined in a similar way. So ME as an illness and in terms of understanding is behind the curve in comparison to to those illnesses. But I do think we're at a point now where people are starting to really take it seriously and are calling for greater research, which will help our understanding. You mentioned uh, affecting women. Does ME tend to affect women more or is that a misconception that I have? No, it ME affects three to four times more women than men, it is thought, and it can affect people of all ages, all backgrounds. What we don't have yet are the statistics that give us actual incidence data. At the moment, we work with prevalence, so this work is based on estimates. And so we desperately need the actual incidence data to better understand who it impacts and affects. So staying with kind of the historical um, analysis here, you know, historically, at least there's been a lot of misconceptions about ME. And I think some of those still maintain today and we're, we've been talking about them and we'll continue to talk about them. There's been a lot of stigma associated with ME and denial that it exists. So 
Can you tell me, Tony, Sonia, can you tell me about the prejudice people with ME have faced over the years and, and, and how that has affected um, people in terms of lack of ability to access treatment, but also, I suppose, what are the impacts on somebody when they're just not being listened to in terms of, you know, what does that mean for someone's mental health when they're saying, I feel, this is how I feel, and they're just being disregarded? I've spoken to many, particularly young people, who are absolutely devastated by the fact that no one believes them. That's the, and that's the that's the thing that really gets to them. But, but it also means no one's believing their parent either. Um, is that still now today, Tony? Is that it is still t- happening? Absolutely. Wow. Um, sadly, as I say, the message just hasn't got around to everybody, and there are still some people who are wedded to the old misconceptions. Um, I, I mean it. What happens from that is if, and that can be doctors, other health professionals, social workers who are not believing people. I think that's the starting point with ME is actually listen to what people are saying, believe what they say, unless there's sort of proof of otherwise. And that's that kind of is not how some people approach it. That's the problem. And, you know, just kind of digging into that, if a young person is saying, this is how I feel, um, how, what, you know, what are the professionals then, what are you hearing in terms of what the professionals are saying? What are the, What is their assessment? What are their assumptions of, of the what the young person is, is, is going through? Okay. I think that a lot, of peop- a lot of people are kind of thinking, well, actually, they're just school phobic or something like that. I mean, I have to say, schools are one of the, big problems at the moment because, or can be, I mean, some schools are brilliant um, they make reasonable adjustments and so forth and, and, and have people on part-time timetables time and so forth. But particularly since schools have been under pressure to up their attendance figures, and we know that Ofsted um, actually assess schools on the basis of overall attendance, and even if you've got a medical uh, certification as to why it shouldn't be there, it still actually counts against the school in the in the overall assessment. Uh, that's what we're being told by head teachers. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on children to, end, to attend school. And the problem is that the way that you might deal with someone who was reluctant to attend school and needed encouragement and so forth is not, not applicable to youngsters with ME. And it's the same with the issue about attending... Um, Attending more. Uh, the fact that you can manage to attend for a few hours one day doesn't mean to say that you'll be able to attend the next. You may have post-exertional malaise and, and it's wiped you out. So I've wandered slightly off the point, really, which I ought to come back to. <laughs> no, that was very <laughs> helpful. Is, okay, <laughs> Don't worry. worry. But, so, I mean, what I, was, what I was saying is that everything can go wrong if, you, if the person isn't believed. If they think that either... Parents are encouraging, say, children not to go to school, to take it easy and so forth. And actually, they don't think that the professionals don't think that that's the right thing. They think they should be pushing um, pushing the child to do more, to attend school and so forth. It can have that really detrimental effect of, of, of setting them back very, very significantly. And some, you know, some setbacks you can overcome in a day or so, some will last for weeks or months. Um, so it, it really is problematic, uh, sort of area. I think the thing is, 
with Emmy, it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? With most other things, if you can do a little bit more uh, than you did yesterday, today, that's good. And the next day you'll be able to do a little bit more. People tend to think that that's how, how things should progress. But actually, if you exceed your energy limit, and, and it's good to think about it in terms of you having an energy envelope, there's a certain amount of energy you've got. If you exceed that, uh, then actually you're going to get worse. And it's it's learning to live within that energy envelope and make the most use and the best use of what little energy that you have that enables people to have the best quality of life that they're actually able to manage at, at that point in time. For time, you may you know be able, if you can get that right, then you may be able to go forward a little bit and do a little bit more. But it's 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 a very tricky process. And and if you get people coming in who don't understand, try to get you to do more than you than you can. Uh, it can have a very detrimental effect. I, I think if we're dealing with an illness where people are hidden from society. Emmy is thought to be one of the biggest causes of long-term health-related school absence. We know that people as parents are subjected to child protection investigations for wrongly assuming fabricated and induced illness. Young people tell us that social isolation, 96% of young people tell us social isolation is um, the biggest issue for them despite the horrific symptoms they experience and 91% of adults. So where you're dealing with with a hidden illness where people are ill at home, not seen, impacted by all of those things as well as symptoms, to add in not being believed really is just the, the cherry on the top. And I think for everybody that I speak to who has ME not being seen, not being listened to and not being believed are major, major issues. Now, with all of that in mind, and Tony has mentioned a couple of times the NICE guidelines that were produced. So NICE, just to remind people, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, they produced the guidelines in 2021 and they're for professionals supporting people with ME. Uh, One of the issues that were addressed in the guidelines relates to safeguarding. Now, can you tell me what the safeguarding issues social workers need to be aware of in relation to MER? Tony, what are those issues? Well, the reason that NICE addressed it was not that people with ME are in greater need of being safeguarded than other people. It's because it's being it got wrong so often that people are being suspected of, of, of being uh, in need of protection. With children, as we've touched on already, um, a fabricated illness and I have to say that the RCPCH Royal College of Paediatricians and Child Health guidance on fabricated or induced illness and perplexing presentations which is, has widened that guidance to include perplexing presentations can be anything that a doctor doesn't understand I mean, uh, has actually made the situation worse I have to, I have to say at this point uh, I very much recommend the Basford, the Basford Practice Guide for Social Workers uh, on Fabricated or Induced Illness, which encompasses not just um, children with ME, um, but uh, one or two other groups as well. But I think children with ME are, the, in, in many ways, the most badly affected, particularly because, as we've said, they're hidden, they're hidden away. People don't 
and they may need to be socially isolated. They may simply not be able to manage contact with other people. And most of them will do as much as they can and find, uh, you know, whether it's using social media or, or whatever it is. Um, it, the youngsters are keen to not be isolated, but they simply sometimes just can't manage it. Um, but so it's being so, you know, if, if you're kind of hidden away in a darkened room and socially isolated, it kind of flags up. It's all the red flags, isn't it, for child protection stuff. So if you don't understand that it's, a, that it's because actually they're very ill and that's the reason and, and for it, then it's a significant, you know, significant problem. So the reason that NICE puts something in it is, is to say, you know, be very careful not to confuse the illness with safeguarding issues. That, that's the point. Yeah, that's point 1.7.1, the very first, and safeguarding recognised that people with MECFS, particularly those with a severe or very severe MECFS, are at risk of their symptoms being confused with signs of abuse or neglect. And with that, with adults, it, it can often, you know, it can be self neglect that, that that they're accused of. Tell me, tell me, yeah, self neglect. So explain that. Kind of expand on that a bit for me, Tony. Well, again, it's the fact that you know, for the most severely affected. They're kind of so sensitive to things and they may have so little energy. They really have to prioritise what what things they can manage to cope with. So they may not be able to have uh, a bath or a shower for months, years even. Um, they may find, you know, if they're padded up, that that may that, that being changed is 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 the as much as they can manage and kind of further sort of washing and so forth has to go down the list a bit, you know. So in many ways, they're not looking after themselves in the way that they would want to. But it's again, it's because of the fact that they haven't got the, the energy and uh, they may be very sensitive skin-wise and so forth. So there's a whole range of reasons why they may be in a situation um, that to other people might look like self-neglected, isn't it? It's just the, the way that they're actually having to cope with this very, very severe illness. And this all comes back then to a full understanding of what ME is, how it affects people and believing people when they say they're unwell. Uh, One of the the other points in the guidelines, uh, it states that if a person with confirmed or suspected ME-CFS needs a safeguarding assessment, directly involve health and social care professionals who have training and experience in in ME-CFS as soon as possible. So the question that I want to ask off the back of that is, do we know if local authority social work teams tend to have social workers who are trained and experienced in ME? Or is that a, is that a, I can see shaking heads, is that a knowledge gap? It's it's a huge knowledge gap. I think it's fair to say there are some great social workers out there and Action Fremi works with some social workers that really take on board the needs of their clients, their service users. But overall, there is no specialism and, and training available for social workers with ME. And we see that as, as a major gap, not just in understanding, but there are some very practical things like um, understanding what that individual needs in order to best support them. So for some individuals who are very severely affected, wearing perfume, certain detergents, the level of the way in which you speak can really affect how that individual is able to engage. Sometimes just intonation and changing the, 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 the modulation of your voice can trigger the post-exertional malaise that we talked about earlier which takes away energy and means that they're then not going to be able to engage with you. I just, I mean, that's 
I had no idea of that. And I'm guessing that's fairly common amongst amongst most people. And it's having that understanding, yeah. Um, just in terms of having a better understanding of the scope of the issue, though, Sonia, do we know how many people in the UK have ME? We understand that at least 250,000 people in the UK have ME. Uh, it's very likely to be higher than that. And a look at the UK biobank held by Edinburgh University suggests that the numbers are upwards of that. We also are seeing many people diagnosed with long COVID who also meet the ME diagnostic criteria. Right. So, and that's something I'm keen to talk about. But just before we do, so a quarter of those 250,000, which you believe to be an underestimate, but a quarter of those people would fall within the category or would likely fall within the category of severe ME that we were talking about earlier. Um, Okay. The issue about long COVID then. So two things. Long COVID, ME could be confused with long COVID. But can ME be the consequence? Can it can it be the can it be a result of a viral infection, which is COVID? You know, so that that complicates things a lot. So just explain that because I haven't probably explained it very well. The symptoms of long COVID could appear to be the symptoms of ME without being the symptoms of ME, and somebody could contract ME after having had COVID. Yeah. So what we know is that many people with ME have a viral trigger. What we had with COVID-19 is a known viral trigger. So it's unsurprising to many of us in the ME world that we are now seeing over 2 million people with long COVID just in the UK alone. The research indicates that there are some people, some subsets or different types, like we get type 1, type 2 diabetes. There are some types of long COVID which look nothing like ME, particularly where those people have been hospitalised on on ventilators. We're seeing people with very, um, with organ damage that is distinctly different from what we see in ME. But there is a significant group of people that have overlapping symptoms, particularly the post-exertional malaise, the severe persistent fatigue, hypersensitivities that we've already talked about. Those individuals could potentially be diagnosed with ME and Action for ME and other charities are hearing that people are just not getting a diagnosis because the doctors and others are saying, well, it doesn't really matter. There aren't really the services and the support. We, we can't treat you. So the label itself doesn't matter. We mentioned that women are more likely to have COVID. Are there any other demographic factors, age, um, ethnicity, anything like that that we know about? So it's believed that people between the age of 20 to 40, 20 to 50 are more likely to have ME. There was some research in the States that indicated that ME was more prevalent for people from non-white communities. But the reality is we don't have the level of research that's needed. We're co-leading Decode ME, which is the world's largest genetic study into ME. And at the moment, we have a data set of over 17,000 people that we've analysed. We've got another 6,000, which will be in the next cohort. And we, uh, we'll, we're we hoping to publish the data from that soon. And that does give a, a greater sense of what we're seeing in terms of people participating in that study, in terms of age, ethnicity, sex assigned at birth and, and so forth. And I was just, I was just looking something on my phone there in case you wondered why I was looking off screen. And it was because I don't want to get this wrong. I'm aware that black and South Asian people were, tended to be um, affected more severely by COVID during the pandemic. And 
I think various reasons for that in terms of you know issues around socioeconomic group and, and and housing and things like that you know could have been a factor there. Would you expect to see a spike in terms of um, the impacts of of ME in specific groups after uh, as the pandemic kind of wanes? It's interesting because it's a very complex issue, isn't it? What you're talking about are multiple health inequities that exist, health socioeconomic inequities that exist across our communities. So I think taking... You can't take one and say it will be a cause of another. What we know in ME is that many people from non-white communities are not accessing services. You could argue that's not surprising. It could also be related to a recognition and understanding of ME within those communities. So I think it's a very complex picture. And we, I am not expecting to see lots of people at this stage coming forward from non-white communities because the understanding of ME is not there. And we also hear that the understanding of long COVID within non-white communities is hidden in a way that maybe we don't see in white communities. There is research which suggests that as many as 40% of people with ME may have some family history of autoimmune conditions. So that is a very significant factor. And also, it is not unknown for it to run directly in families. So you may have a parent and a child who both have ME. And unfortunately, that's also one of the issues that is then sometimes used against them for people who don't understand. I've actually seen it you know, kind of quoted in a, in, a, in a doctor's report as a reason for not believing that this child has ME because their, their mother also had it. I mean, it's nonsense. Uh, we, we know... That it, it does, you know, it does quite often follow. That's absolutely wild. So as a social worker, Tony, when you're advocating for somebody with ME, you know, I'm looking at the advice you would give to other social workers listening to this podcast. How can social workers better advocate for their service users who have ME? You know, how can they enhance their support for them? Well, I think the first, I mean, it goes back to what we said, which is about com- communication and listening and believing. And if you can establish that relationship with somebody, and, and again, the nice guidelines is don't be surprised if people with ME are a bit kind of hostile or, or worried about contact because of the way that they've been treated. But if you can establish a good relationship, then you can you can indeed be a wonderful advocate for the person. Um, you need to establish means of communication for those who are more severe. Again, you know, it's very easy to communicate with with someone who's who's, who's milder, providing you're coming at it with an open mind. Uh, for for those who are more severe, you may well be needing to do it in little chunks. You may have to find out. You know, are they happier being able to use social media? Send you the occasional message or. Uh, voice messages or, or whatever. Uh, it's just been really sensitive to the person's need. Learning about the illness um, and getting yourself to a position where you actually can represent views which they may be struggling to put forward themselves. And that's one of the reasons that family members and carers and people uh, very often can assist. Um, it's not that they're well, it could be that they're talking over the person. We also have to be sensitive about that. And it's always worth, particularly with children, you know, 
seeing the child in a situation where you can talk to them directly. But for, for the lot, for most of the time, they may well want their carer to be there to explain things because they actually haven't got the energy um, and the ability, of, of the brain fog may impede them from doing it, to, to get things over themselves. It doesn't mean, by the way, that they're any less intelligent or less able to make decisions for themselves. Um, sometimes mental capacity issues are kind of cited. Actually, if you communicate properly with people, they're still absolutely on the ball and able to uh, know what the, what's right for them. It's just they may have a little bit of difficulty kind of putting that over as clearly as they'd like to be doing. I think it's fair to say I, when I was a practising social worker in child protection, I hadn't heard of ME. We didn't mention that before, Sonia, you were a social worker. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a social worker working in child protection, I didn't know about ME and I'm embarrassed to say that. And it took time for me in this role to understand what ME was. I think the simplest thing that social workers can do right at the beginning is ask the question, what do I need to understand about you or the person with ME to be able to best support them? So you can understand the nuances of how ME affects that individual. There are lots of guides, Action for ME, 25% group have produced guides for social workers. We're developing the top tips guide um, with with a number of organisations for, for adult care social workers at the moment. You can access the charities, you can call us and we will give you information, support and send you links to resources. Some of us provide advocacy services and I think it's really important not to jump to the assumptions and stereotypes that exist and to think about things like social care assessments and the place that they have because we hear that they're not taking place. The other thing to add is to think about young carers and the impact for children, young people who are in a caring role for a family member in their, their household and to consider how those assessments can be utilised as part of the overall support to families. So for listeners, I will collate all those different guides that Sonia mentioned and they'll be up at links in the show notes along with the links to the NICE guidance as well so you can read all of that. I would just want to finish with one last question and that is, you know, if we compare practice in the UK to practice elsewhere in the world. Are there any examples of countries that are really getting it right, Sonia, that we should be learning from? I don't think there are. I think there are so many gaps in our knowledge and understanding. Some countries we know are still advocating for exercise treatments that have been ruled out in this country through the revision of the NICE guideline. I co-chair the World ME Alliance. We have 21 members across the world. All of us are struggling with similar issues of stigma, lack of treatments, lack of research and a lack of support services. So sadly, there is a gap globally. One thing we do have here in the UK is the NHS, a social care system that has the opportunity to better understand how we can best support people with ME of all ages. I just wanted to reinforce what Sonia was saying previously about uh, the, the charities are only too willing to assist. Um, we we have people who can act as advocates. We're only too happy to talk to social workers. My experience has been very varied. Some really great social workers who are absolutely dead keen to to hear more about uh, about the about ME, so that they can adjust what they're doing. Uh, and some have been very kind of defensive and, and, and don't want to know. They want to continue on the route. So be open-minded. 
utilize the, the people who do understand it, the illness if you don't understand it yourself um and and that way we can provide a much better overall service for people who, who do suffer from this you know really significant condition disease whatever you care to call um, people can work together and, and provide a good and proper service, but they do need to understand the illness, and it's it's just so important. Mm-hmm.